All right, Revelation 4, a passage as we noted that is all about worship, the true worship of God. In John chapter 4, verse 23, Jesus said to the Samaritan woman that the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. That is to say, God seeks a certain kind of worshiper, one that will worship him with their whole being through and through. And in truth, in, in the truth of the matter, or in respect to all that God is in his perfections, in his character. Uh, in some ways, we said um, Revelation 4 is, is, is an explanation of, or you might say an exposition of, that passage in John chapter 4 because it addresses that very thing. Uh, it addresses the issue of pure worship, unhindered worship, worship that is perfect in its expression, perfect in its, in its attentiveness, perfect in its content. Uh, we said that, that that is what visitors to our church uh, should notice as they, as they come through the doors of our church and as they participate and attend one of our worship services, that one of the things that should really stand out to them is the fact that God is supreme, uh, that, that, that we as His redeemed people have, have a task, that we are fully engaged in what God has called us to do, and that the truth matters, uh, that more than an emotional experience, that what we need in our lives as believers, is a submission to Christ and His Word. That is the highest form of worship. The highest form of worship is not an emotional high. Uh, The highest form of worship is obedience and submission to Christ and His truth. So that is is our goal, to be conformed to the image of Christ. That is what makes us a pure worshiper. So this is what we encounter in Revelation chapter 4, John's vision of the throne room of God, which is fitting because the prophecies to come describe God's final judgment on sin, the culmination of what God has been saying throughout the history of His people. This reversal of the curse that we mentioned back in Genesis 3 a few weeks ago, um, and, and, and all that God has subjected creation to, this is going to be the culmination of those things, and it is what every true believer knows must happen. We understand this. We understand this is, this is what must play out. It is what every, every believer knows must happen, and it is what every unbeliever knows will happen, but suppresses that reality with more unrighteous living, according to Romans 1. And so everything will be summed up. We'll see that as we move forward in, in our study. Everything will be dealt with. Every sin will be judged justly. Every promise that God has made, He will Keep and fulfill. But the judgments described that will take place in the tribulation are so global and so severe and so, so sweeping that some may wonder if the punishment fits the crime. In fact, by the time you get to chapters 16, 17, and 18, we'll see this, that the, the earth is, is covered in blood, the waters of the earth are filled with the stench of death and disease, Global population is reduced to a fraction of its original size, and so it makes sense that, that there is, in John's vision, a beginning point, a place from which these judgments proceed and emanate. Everything will come forth, according to this vision, from this place. What place? The throne, according to Revelation 4, of Almighty God. And it makes sense that we have in this vision a description of God Himself and all that takes place around His throne 
so that it sort of sets our hearts up to, to understand why the rest of this prophecy exists. So that, so that we as God's people know that what will take place is just and that it is right. So that we as God's people know that it comes from God who promises to deal with sin's reign once and for all. Of course, sin has been conquered in one sense, uh, and, and Satan is, is a defeated foe, but that is what we're dealing with here is this culmination of that, of that, uh, that, that conquering, that victory, and it must take place, as we noticed according to verse 1 of chapter 4. So what you have in chapters 4 and 5 is the preparing of the hearts of God's people for what is to come. Now, last time we looked mainly at verses 2 to 4. You'll notice there it says, immediately, immediately I was in the Spirit. This is the Apostle John, which, by the way, doesn't speak to the fact that he was in, um, you might say, the, 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 um, the realm of the Holy Spirit, um, as opposed to being in the realm of the flesh. Uh, it's, it's used that with this phrase, in the Spirit, it's used that way in, in other contexts. Uh, nor does it mean that John was spirit-filled or controlled by the Spirit, although he certainly was. This, this is more of a technical phrase that speaks about the temporary ecstatic condition into which God placed John for the sake of granting him the revelations of this book. It's similar to Peter's experience in Acts chapter 10, where Peter was on the housetop, uh, and verse 11 says in Acts 10, but, but he became hungry and was desiring to eat. But while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance, and he saw the sky opened up and an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground, and there, there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. Verse 13, a voice came to him and said, get up, Peter, kill and eat. That word there in verse 10, it's translated in the New American Standard as trance. It's, in fact, it's translated in, in most English translations as trance, uh, in the ESV as well as the King James. Uh, the Holman Christian Standard Bible translates it as a visionary state. Uh, it's actually the term in the Greek, is, it's ecstasis. So it's where we, that is why we refer to it as an ecstatic condition or an ecstatic state. Uh, the same term is used in Acts twenty two seventeen, where Paul is speaking to the Jews about his own testimony of conversion and mentions the time that he was in Jerusalem and praying in the temple and fell into a trance and saw the Lord saying to him, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. You can compare that to 2 Corinthians chapter 12 where Paul is speaking about himself receiving visions and revelations of the Lord. He says there in verse 2, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, nor out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a man was caught up to the third heaven. And I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. So this isn't something that every Christian should expect to experience. And the only reason I go back there is because it, it is, it is you, you read those little phrases sometimes in the Spirit, and you see them in other places, and you wonder, well, is this, if, if John was in the Spirit, well, I thought we were in the Spirit. I mean, isn't that what Galatians says? Isn't that what 
Isn't that what Paul says in, in Romans? So I thought it was, it was important to come back to this. Somebody actually had a, a, sent me a question about this this week and, and just saying, you know, what specifically does that mean and is it something that Christians should expect to experience themselves? You could say every believer is in the Spirit in the sense that the presence of God's Holy Spirit is in them and He dominates them and... Every believer is to be filled with the Spirit and to pray, as Ephesians 6 says, in the Spirit, meaning they are to be submissive to the Spirit and His Word, speaking about that, that close, uh, that intimate relationship that we have with Him. But this is more about prophetic revelation, which always has its origin in the Holy Spirit. Mysteries, as the Scripture says, things which are unknown and unknowable by man things that are always, according to the Scriptures, revealed by the Spirit. We see this in Ephesians chapter 3. Paul says this, For this reason, verse 1, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief, by referring to this, verse 4, when you read you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed to His holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. So it's also important to note that being in the Spirit, in the sense John describes, is never something initiated by man. So John did not get himself worked up into the Spirit. Rather, this is a sovereign action initiated by God in order to impart divine instruction. As Ezekiel described it in Ezekiel 1.3, the word of the Lord came expressly to him, and quote, the hand of the Lord came upon him. So in this more technical sense, no one is ever commanded to be in the Spirit. Okay, because this, what this has become, it's, be, it's become a, a, a pursuit. People are saying, I want that, right? <laughs> Can I have what John had, right? Can I have that kind of experience? And I'm saying, this, the, way that, the way that this phrase is used in its technical sense is, is never described as something that the common believer should, A, experience, much less pursue. Simply says because we're not commanded to be in it. It simply says that these individuals were in the Spirit. Moreover, this is never described in the Old or New Testament as some common occurrence in the life of God's people, but only a select few. And those few, most of them key figures in redemptive history, prophets, or in the New Testament apostles, such as Peter, Paul, and John, were always passive recipients of that which God initiated. And in that sense, the experience we're talking about is diametrically opposed to the ecstatic frenzies associated with cultic prophets such as in 1 Kings 18, the prophets of Baal who cried with a loud voice and cut themselves according to their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out on them and raved. But verse 29 of that chapter says, there was no voice, no one answered, and no one paid attention. And it's clearly opposed to some modern charismatic movements wherein the person actively participates in bringing about an altered state of consciousness. That is not what it means to be in the Spirit in any sense of the phrase, biblically speaking. 
So again, it just drives home the point, folks, and we've, we've tried to emphasize this along the way. There's some, some, of, the, uh, some of this bi- biblical, biblical terms, biblical phrases, biblical language. You, you, have to, you have to look at the context. We talk about how important it is to study these things in, in context, how important it is to compare Scripture with Scripture, but very, very uh, obviously it could get you going in a very dangerous direction to just be snatching these things out and saying, well, if it happened to them, it needs to be happening in my life. Someone else, I gave someone else a resource this morning. They were asking about the issue of, of exorcisms. Again, you go through those... those um, uh, passages in, in the Gospels, you go through the, the, uh, the book of Acts, you see certain things happening, and it's, 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 a, it's a normal question, I think, to ask, well, if it was going on in their lives and it was happening in the early church or it was happening in the life of Christ or it was happening in the life of the apostles, should it be something that we should expect us to experience? So it's not, it's not, the question's not bad. It's just in, 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 in finding the answer to these things, we have to be very careful. So if any of you had that question, I, 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 I didn't spend a lot of time there, but I thought it would be worth going back and just revisiting that just to make, make sure that we're clear on those things. So back to Revelation 4, verse 2. Immediately I was in the Spirit. Behold, a throne was standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Again, this is about worship. You have in verse 1 John's invitation to heaven, and then beginning in verse 2 you have John's vision of heaven. And we looked at that starting with the throne in heaven, the, uh, the heavenly throne itself, a throne we said of such significance in this particular chapter that it's referenced 11 times and everything else in the chapter is described in relation to it. And so you have all these prepositions, things that were uh, around the throne, things that were before the throne, th- throne, things that were coming out from the throne that were sort of emanating from it. We'll look at all these various aspects, but again, the, the, the key is to see the throne as that sort of cent- central piece of, of this uh, particular passage. So everything else is described in relation to the throne, and then we considered <clears throat> the one on the throne who is no other, uh, none other than God, God the Father, described in verse 3 as majestic and glorious with images of precious things that refract the blazing prisms of light that shine out from him. And again, John's, John's really talking about appearance. And so again, John's not trying to describe some specific sort of bodily form. He, in fact, he uses the, the word appearance in verse 3 because that's, that's really what he's after. That, that is to say that this is his attempt in the power of the Spirit to evoke transcendent realities such as God's perfections. And the best that he can do is to say it's like this. It's sort of like that. It, it's, it's kind of this. It has the appearance of that. That's really as close as he can get. He gives us concepts of eternal purity and captivating beauty, and he can't describe it except to use concepts that represent translucence, brilliance, worth, and precious things. Somehow trying to convey that God is holy and righteous and eternal. And then John mentions the rainbow, the rainbow around the throne, brilliant light emanating from the throne that that 
resembled a rainbow of emerald hues. And we said, we made mention of this, that it was not a half circle, but a a halo. It was a circular rainbow, perhaps a reminder that God's mercy is as great as His majesty, that God is holy and He is a God of wrath, but He is also a God of mercy and grace and faithfulness. And then we have a company of worshipers that are filled with wonder. And John once again, attempts to describe what he's seeing, these 24 elders around the throne, which are likely, in in my opinion, and we talked about two different views, uh, the the, the two main ideas, one that these represent human beings, represent men, the other that they represent uh, some sort of uh, angelic beings, and that's where I, I lean on this, that these were likely a unique class of angelic beings a particular group of supernatural beings which are called here elders, spirit beings made to reveal things about God for the sake of worship and quite possibly to oversee worship around the throne, angelic nobles who are always worshiping. And they've been assigned some thrones to demonstrate that they are vice regents in authority under Christ for that very task, that very thing. They are clothed in white garments, speaking of the purity of their worship. They have golden crowns on their heads, representing the regal majesty of their position because they are there for a purpose, and that purpose is to teach what God deserves in worship. And they have distinct a distinct practice in what they're doing. And we noted these things about their worship last Sunday. We said first that their worship manifests honor and submission to God. They fall down before the throne, down and we see that down in verse 10. They cast their crowns before the throne. They ascribe majesty to God by those actions and by their proclamations. And when it comes to redemption and Christ's worthiness, they fall down before Him in order to manifest that same honor and submission. Worship, then, in its purest form, as I said, begins with this manifestation of honor and submission. We also said that they worship with their whole person. It says, you'll notice down in chapter 5, verse 9, that they sang a new song. That is to say, they were in touch with what God was doing redemptively. They had watched God's people. They were fully in touch with the redemption of the people of God, they were, they were attentive to those things, they were fully engaged in those things, and they are worshiping God with their whole being so that when a new song comes up as redemption unfolds, it is right there on their lips and their tongues because they are fully consumed with what God is doing and praising Him for it. So they worship with their whole person. And then finally, we also learned about pure worship, that they worship in truth. And this kind of goes back to what we said at the beginning of our lesson last week about the content, the substance of worship. Because worship today tends to be more about an emphasis on style than, than it is on substance and content. And yet we see these, these, these regal angels... Uh, these leaders, if you will, of worship, worshiping in truth, the truth of God's worthiness and the truth of Christ's worthiness, the fact that God deserves to take the honor and the glory and the power for His act of creation and His sustaining providence, the fact that Christ the Lamb deserves to seize the glory and honor for Himself, for His humiliation and His work of redemption, to get the praise that is due Him, That is what these angelic nobles do. They teach us about worship that is pure and eternal and humble and submissive. 
And the theme of their worship in chapter 4 is the supreme worthiness of God. And they say to God, you are deserving of it. That's what they say. You are deserving of it. You deserve glory, honor, and power. You deserve to take these things for yourself, to have them ascribed to you. Therefore, seize the honor from your people. It's almost as if this is a, and this is the case of a lot of the, the Psalms. When you think about the Psalms, you think of them, well, I guess it depends on the, on, on the Psalm <laughs> and where you are in your life sometimes when you read these things. You either see them as sometimes as songs, and then in other cases you see them as prayers. And this is one of those things. So you can see this as sort of a, 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 a song, sort of a declaration, right? Saying, God, you are worthy, but in a way it's as if it's also a request and a prayer for God to seize the, the glory and the power that he deserves. That is to say, it is fitting. It is fitting for God to get the glory and the power for himself because it rightly belongs to him. So what we have in these verses, if you will, is a vision of the supreme worthiness of God. But notice verse 5. We also have here a vision of the fearsome power of God as we consider the sights and sounds out from the throne. The sights and sounds out from the throne. Verse 5, out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. Now, we know that God's presence is frequently associated with things such as violent shaking, uh, very loud noises, rapid flashes of blinding light that sort of emanate or explode outward. And these, these kinds of outward manifestations of God's presence were always terrifying to God's people. Uh, you think back to Exodus chapter 19. Moses is at Mount Sinai, Sinai with the people of God, picking up verse 10 of Exodus 19. The Lord also said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. You shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, Beware that you do not go up on the mountain or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot through. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the ram's horn sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. Verse 14, So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day, and do not go near a woman. So it came about on the third day that when it was morning, that there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Verse 18, Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked violently. And when the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him with thunder. Which is an appropriate description of the voice of God in these texts. The concepts of voice and thunder closely associated with one another. You see this again in Job chapter 36. 
Verse 29, can anyone understand the spreading of the clouds, the thundering of his pavilion? Behold, he spreads his lightning about him and he covers the depths of the sea. For by these he judges peoples, he gives food in abundance. He covers his hands with the lightning and commands it to strike the mark. Its noise declares his presence. The cattle also concerning what is coming up. In the very next chapter, chapter 37 Verse 1, at this also my heart trembles and leaps from its place. Listen closely to the thunder of his voice and the rumbling that goes out from his mouth. Under the whole heaven he lets it loose and his lightning to the ends of the earth. After it a voice roars. He thunders with his majestic voice and he does not restrain the lightnings when his voice is heard. God thunders, verse 5, with his voice wondrously, doing great things which we cannot comprehend. Second Samuel chapter 22, this is part of David's song that he sang when God delivered him from the hand of all of his enemies and from the hand of Saul. You'll also find this recorded in Psalm chapter 18. Second Samuel 22, beginning in verse 14, The Lord thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered His voice, and He sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning, and routed them or, or, or confused them. Psalm 77, verse, eight, uh, verse 16, The waters saw you, O God, the waters saw you. They were in anguish. The deeps also trembled. So this is a sort of a dramatic description of the, of the uh, parting of the Red Sea. Verse 17, The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth a sound. Your arrows flashed here and there, and the sound of your thunder was in the whirlwind. The lightnings lit up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Even at the Lord's rebuke, we find phenomena like that going on. And in Psalm 104, it happens to be in the context of God's act of creation and forming the earth. Verse 5 of Psalm 104, He established the earth upon its foundations so that it will not totter forever and ever. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters were standing above the mountains. At your rebuke, they fled. At the sound of your thunder, they hurried away. The mountains rose, the valleys sank down to the place which you established for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass over so that they will not return to cover the earth. Psalm 29, verse 1, Ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in holy array. Verse 3, The voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The The God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Yes, the Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord who's out flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer, uh, the deer to calve and, and stripe, strips the forest bare, and in his temple everything says, glory. Again, God's voice is frequently associated with thunder and loud rumblings and other atmospheric, or you might say, or meteorological events, and these things along with fire <clears throat> and bright flashes are seen not only in the context of creation, but also in the context of judgment. Isaiah chapter 30, verse 27, Behold, the name of the Lord comes from a remote place, Burning, in, burning is his anger, and dense is his smoke. His lips are filled with indignation, and his tongue is like a consuming fire. His breath is an overflowing torrent, which reaches to the neck. 
to shake the nations back and forth in a sieve and to put in the jaws of the peoples the bridle which leads to ruin. You will have songs as in the night when you keep the festival and gladness of heart as when one marches to the sound of the flute to go to the mountain of the Lord, the rock of Israel. And the Lord will cause His voice of authority to be heard and the descending of His arm to be seen in fierce anger and in the flame of a consuming fire in cloudburst, downpour, and hailstones. For at the voice of the Lord, Assyria will be terrified when He strikes with the rod. And then last time in Ezekiel 1, last week we looked at that chapter and recognized some of the similarities between it and the vision of Revelation 4. Ezekiel 1 verse 4, As I looked, behold, a storm wind was coming from the north as a a great cloud with fire flashing forth continually and a bright light around it and in its midst something like glowing metal in the midst of the fire. Verse 13, In the midst of, of the living beings there was something that looked like burning coals of fire, like torches darting back and forth among the living beings. The fire was bright and lightning was flashing from the fire and the living beings ran to and fro like bolts of lightning. Verse 24, I also heard the sound of their wings like the sound of abundant waters as they went, like the voice of the Almighty, a sound of tumult, like the sound of an army camp. So we have massive noise. We have things that look like fire exploding forth. And this is what John sees and hears as he gazes at the throne of God and the one seated on it and things emanating from it. Flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. All associated with the impending apocalyptic judgments. Judgments that are about to be sent upon the earth. And when they are, these sights and sounds remind the people of God's fearsome power. Revelation chapter 8, verse 1 says, When the Lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel came and stood at the altar holding a golden censer, and much incense was given to him, so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar which was before the throne." And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand. And then the angel took the censer, verse 5, and filled it with the fire of the altar and threw it, into the, threw it to the earth. And there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. Revelation chapter 11, verse 15, this is another scene where the 24 elders fall on their faces and worship God at the sounding of the seventh trumpet. Verse 15, then the seventh angel sounded and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who are and who were, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. And the nations were enraged and your wrath came and the time came for the deed to be ju- the dead to be judged and the time to reward your bondservants, the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. 
And the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened, and the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple. And there were what? Flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. Once again, God's power is on display in these judgments and these phenomena. Revelation chapter 16, verse 17. This is, this is at the pouring out of the seventh bowl of God's wrath. Verse 17, Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the, uh, upon the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there was a great earthquake, such as there had not been since man came, to, came upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it, and so mighty... And that is the significance of what John sees in Revelation 4, that God is powerful, God is mighty, and nothing can stop God and nothing can stop these judgments that are coming. You remember what Shane preached a couple of weeks ago about the coming Antichrist in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Paul refers to him there as the man of lawlessness, the one who hates God, the one who sets himself up as God, the one who sets himself up, up as the one in the place of Christ. He is a, he's a, he's a, Shane made this comment, he is both against Christ and he is the substitute. That's what he wants to be, the, a Christ substitute, hence the Antichrist. He is, he is one who is, according to that text, energized by Satan. He is one who works miracles and deceives the nations. But what did the Apostle Paul want the Thessalonian church to know? Chapter 2, verse 8. Then that lawless one <clears throat> will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That quick, folks. That quick. And, and Shane even that the way that Paul describes that, it's, it's as if it's the very first indication of His coming. It's like, it's like the very front end of the coming of the Lord. In that moment, God destroys the Antichrist. That quick, that certain, that unstoppable. Why? Because God is omnipotent, all-powerful. He is able to keep His covenant He is able to deal with every act of wickedness. And whoever the saints are in that tribulation period, those those that God will save, because He will save some during that time in His mercy, but whoever those saints are in that period will desperately need to know what this prophecy said. As these things are unfolding in the tribulation, they, they they will need to know and to understand what John writes here, that every judgment of God that rains down on earth finds its origin in heaven and comes from Almighty God who reigns in fearsome power and will never fail in His judgment. So this, this, this vision of, of, of John is, is a vision of God. It's a vision of God in His court. It is a vision of the supreme worthiness of God and it's a vision of the fearsome power of God. But it's also a vision of the infinite knowledge of God because at the end of verse 5 it says that there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne which are the seven spirits of God. 
So while we have this, dis- this display of God's fearsome power in judgment, we also have a display of God's omniscience in judgment through the seven spirits of God before the throne, which are not new to us because we've already encountered them in chapter 1, verse 4. If you want to turn back there, this, again, we covered this in the sermon series last summer, but it says in, in verse 1, John, or excuse me, chapter 1, verse 4, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now we know that within the Godhead there are three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, or the, the Logos, the Word that became flesh, and the Holy Spirit, who according to John fifteen twenty six proceeds from the Father. But here John refers to the Holy Spirit as the seven spirits of God before the throne. You look over at Revelation chapter 3, verse 1. <clears throat> this is, again, that section of the, the letters from Christ to the churches. Revelation 3, 1, to the angel of the church, the messenger of the church in Sardis, write, he, this is speaking of Christ, he, Christ, who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, says this. So Jesus is the one who has the seven spirits of God and holds them and sends them out. That is to say that they proceed from the ministry of Jesus. They work on behalf of or minister on behalf of Christ. Then we have mention of them again in Revelation 4, verse 5, our text today, pictured as seven lamps of fire burning before the throne. And then notice Revelation chapter 5, verse 6, John says, And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So Jesus Christ holds the seven spirits of God, and Christ has seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And so what you begin to piece together at this point is the fact that the seven spirits of God are really the spirit of Christ. And the spirit of Christ is held by Christ and sent out by Christ throughout the globe on a redemptive mission to penetrate the world with the power of Christ and the perfect wisdom of God. Now, how do we know that? Because this is a clear reference to Zechariah chapter 4, verse 10, which speaks about the eyes of the Lord ranging to and fro throughout the earth. And verse 6, where the angel brings the message to Zerubbabel in that passage in Zechariah saying, not by might nor by power, but by what? My spirit, says the Lord of hosts. In other words, the spirit of God is the one who searches it out and penetrates all of creation. And when the Lord who holds the seven spirits which are the Spirit Himself, when He sends the spirits out across the globe, they unfailingly accomplish the work Christ wants them to accomplish. So why is the Holy Spirit referred to as seven rather than just one? Well, again, you can't really ignore the way that the number seven is used throughout the book of Revelation. You have seven golden lampstands, you have seven stars, seven seals, seven angels, seven trumpets, seven peals of thunder, seven plagues, and that's just a sampling. 
Lots of sevens. And the number seven in the places that it is repeated seems to most often refer to the fullness of something or the completeness of something. And this is what is meant by the seven spirits who are before God's throne. The Holy Spirit is penetrating. The Holy Spirit is comprehensive in His wisdom. He knows every detail of creation, every kingdom that has come on and off and gone off the scene, every person, every soul, every motive, every thought, every deed. He's marked it down. He never forgets. His knowledge is comprehensive. A fact, of course, which is naturally of no comfort to the lost, but to the saved, it is absolutely a comfort to know that God is aware of everything the reality of everything, and that He is taking care of everything in His creation. What does that mean? That means that from the throne and before His judgments are meted out, His people know that He will deal with it according to all that He is and all that He is going to accomplish for His glory which becomes especially meaningful when you get to the later judgments in, in the tribulation and the bowls of wrath are being poured out. And in fact, just as an example of this, look at Revelation 16. Revelation 16, verse 4. Then the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of waters, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the waters saying, Righteous are you who are and who were, O holy one, because you judged these things. For they poured out the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. And then what does it say? They deserve it. They deserve it. That is this angel's commentary on the just judgment of God. It is fair. Stuff about God's not fair. (laughs) This is fair. This is right. In fact, this is, you might say, this is consistent with both what has been done and who God is. It is just judgment according to the sin committed. They not only got it, but they deserved it exactly as they received it. And then notice verse 7. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, O Lord, the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. There will not be one stone unturned, not one sin that goes without punishment. This is why you have this vision in chapter 4, verse 5, and, and of the seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which, by the way, before, before you, this, you had the seven lampstands. <clears throat> that was the churches. And the seven spirits of God are there, and they're lit up. But here in this context, you have this is a context of judgment. They are burning before the throne. Or you might say it this way, they are prepared and poised and positioned for judgment. Poised and positioned to bring sin to light and to judge accordingly. This is the vision that the judgment will come and it will be fulfilled completely, effectively, and according to God's infinite knowledge. That is to say, God's knowledge is prepared to carry out every judgment down to the last detail. 
No questions unanswered, no sin unpunished, which is an absolute necessity, and believers know that. And it's an absolute comfort for the believer, right, that God knows. God knows how to deal out judgment and to deal with those who have come against God's people, and He will be perfect in that. He will solve all of our dilemmas, and whatever suffering that we have endured for His name, there will be all reward and blessing in eternity with Christ. And God's infinite knowledge makes it so. John sees it around the throne and before the throne, the infinite knowledge of God, a knowledge that cannot be separated from the very throne that will mete out the judgments. So be encouraged. Be strengthened. God knows. God knows. And He will deal with all of it. I mean, folks, this has been a common struggle for believers through the ages. You, you see it. It's, 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 it's a theme that runs all through the Psalms. Trying to understand the justice and the judgment of God in light of present circumstances. Right? I mean, isn't that the question that the psalmist often asks? It's like, when, when, Lord? When is this stuff going to happen? Are you awake? Are you awake? Do you see what I'm going through? The answer is yes, he does. God knows, and he will deal with all of it in his time. The reason God's not dealing with it is not because he's not omniscient. It's just what's unfolding as a consequence of God's wisdom and what he knows will bring him the most glory. Romans 8 says this, and we'll close with this, For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, so that we may also be glorified with Him. That's just a part of it, folks. (laughs) Suffering in the Christian life is just a part of it. But we also will be glorified. Then he says this, verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Again, this is our God, supreme in His worthiness, fearsome in His power, infinite in His knowledge. And there's more. We've got a sea of glass and we've got four living creatures. And we'll pick up there next time. Uh, Just again, to let you know, we've got that retreat this week and counseling conference. More than likely, I'll have someone uh, teach next Sunday for me just because of what's going on with that counseling conference and the teaching that needs to be done there. But uh, Lord willing, uh, the next week we'll continue on and uh, pick up in verse Uh, verse 6 of chapter 4. All right? Thank you, folks, for your time.